Before we begin, just a short note. You may know about the devastating wildfires that are plaguing California right now. Our air quality has been greatly affected across the state. Although I am over 300 miles away from the nearest fire, our local air quality is also in the danger zone. Yesterday was reported as the worst air quality day in the history of the state. While recording the last episode and this one, my voice keeps sliding into raspy due to my dry throat, and you may notice that. I've done everything I can to try and remedy it, but at this point, I'm just trying to work around it. Partially for this reason, today's episode will be a little shorter, and I apologize for that. But I still feel I'm sharing an interesting story, and a little-known one, especially here in the U.S. As for all of you who are living near fire zones or have been displaced by the fires, I'm thinking of you daily and hoping you stay safe. To all the men and women fighting the fires, thank you for your bravery and I'm praying for your safety as well. And all of those who are helping the victims on the front lines, you are also our heroes. Thank you for all that you do. If you'd like to donate to help those whose homes have been affected by the California wildfires, here are a couple of ways you can do that. I've included some links in the show notes. You can go to redcross.org to help the American Red Cross, who is opening shelters across the state to help evacuees. You can also give to the California Community Foundation's Wildfire Relief Fund. They give grants to help rebuild homes and provide financial and mental health assistance. Many animal societies are accepting donations to help displaced pets from their nearby fire zones. One of these is the Humane Society of Ventura County. You can Google how to help California fire victims to find more agencies who are working to help. Thank you in advance for your help. This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for episode 111 of Once Upon a Crime. This month, I'm picking cases from listener suggestions. For this episode, I've been sent a case from a listener in Brazil, Alexandre Guglielmelli. I told him I'd probably butcher his name. Hey, I did my best. In 2002, a sensational case made all the headlines in Brazil when a wealthy couple was found beaten and strangled in their home in Sao Paulo. The public soon found themselves riveted to the unfolding details of the crime. The story had all the elements it needed to keep it in the news. Murder, money, drugs, and sex. This is the case of Susan von Richthofen, evil blonde. Police arrived at a home located in an exclusive neighborhood of Sao Paulo, Brazil, in the early morning hours of November 1st, 2002. They had received a call about a possible break-in at the home of Manfred and Maricia von Richthofen. Von Richthofen was a 49-year-old engineer who worked as a director of the state company for highway development in Sao Paulo. Manfred had been named after his famous great-uncle, German World War I ace pilot Manfred von Richthofen, better known as the Red Baron. Manfred's wife, Mauricia, was a Brazilian of Lebanese descent. Mauricia was a psychiatrist. The couple had two children, 19-year-old Suzanne and 15-year-old Andreas. When police arrived, the house was somewhat in disarray. They had been called by Suzanne, who stood in front of the home with her brother, Andreas. They thought there may have been a break-in. They had been away from home the following evening and Suzanne told police she wasn't sure if her parents were home or not. Waiting with her and Andreas was Suzanne's 21-year-old boyfriend, 
Daniel Cravinos. Police entered the house and called out to Mr. and Mrs. von Richthofen. There was no answer. The silence echoed in the large house. They tentatively climbed the steps to the second floor, where the bedrooms were located. Checking first one room and then another, they finally reached the master bedroom. There they found Manfred and Mauricia lying in their bed. Both had been beaten to a pulp. They had towels placed over their faces. It would be determined that they had been dead for a few hours. Someone had entered their home while they were sleeping the night before and murdered them in their beds. The terrible news was broken to the von Richthofen children. As for a motive, that first glance looked to be a home burglary gone wrong. Perhaps the burglars thought no one was home, and when they discovered the couple, they killed them as to not leave witnesses. Detectives would hopefully know more after their investigation. They would start with the robbery angle and then look into Manfred's business dealings and any possible suspects that may have had a motive to kill the von Richthofens. Two days after the murders, investigators returned to the von Richthofen home to ask some follow-up questions of the family. When they knocked at the door, they got no answer. They heard noises coming from the back of the house, and they made their way there. There, they found Suzanne, her boyfriend Daniel, and some other young friends partying and swimming in the pool. They were stunned to see the young girl, who had just lost both of her parents in a brutal murder, laughing and having a good time, practically before her parents' bodies were even cold. They now decided to look into Miss Suzanne von Richthofen's history. Suzanne Louise von Richthofen was born on November 3, 1983, in Brazil. She had graduated with good grades from a German high school before studying law at the Pontificia Universidad Católica. Suzanne was close to her parents and younger brother, Andreas. She was described by those who knew the petite blonde as happy but shy. She was smart and spoke three languages. She was an accomplished young lady from a wealthy family and had been given the best of everything, home, possessions, and educational opportunities. But detectives also learned that she wasn't a snob. She had wealthy friends, but she also hung out with others who came from less. One of these people was her boyfriend, Daniel Cravinos. In 1999, Suzanne began training in the martial art of jiu-jitsu. It was at this martial arts class that Suzanne met Daniel. Daniel was Suzanne's first serious boyfriend, and she fell head over heels for him. At first, her parents welcomed the young man into their home. He was a couple of years older than their daughter, and that may have given them a bit of pause, but Suzanne convinced them to give him a chance. They may have thought that 16-year-old Suzanne would soon move on to another boyfriend before long. She was young and had many years ahead of her to date and fall in love, they most likely thought. But Suzanne only had eyes for Daniel. Even while she graduated high school and continued on to law school, the Richthofen saw that Daniel didn't seem to aspire to much. He wasn't attending school, and later they found out that he didn't even have a job. They began to press Suzanne to end her relationship with him, but she refused. Daniel, they may have also discovered, was a heavy drug user. Besides a daily marijuana habit, he had slid into using more dangerous drugs. This may have been partially the reason why Daniel didn't possess much motivation to work or study. He didn't come from a wealthy family, and it is assumed that money for drugs was sometimes supplied by his girlfriend, Suzanne, who soon joined him in his partying lifestyle. As Suzanne slid further into this lifestyle with her boyfriend, her parents, at their wit's end, 
served her an ultimatum. If she didn't break up with him, they would send her to school in Europe. As her parents were paying for her education at the prestigious university, she needed their financial support to complete her degree. She knew they could and would carry out their threat, so she told them that she would break up with Daniel. Daniel stopped coming to the von Richthofen house, and they hoped that this would be the end of it. But Suzanne, without their knowledge, continued to see Daniel either at his house or at a nearby cyber cafe. For you youngins, that's a place that people used to go to use computers to send emails, play games, etc. It was like a local coffee shop with technology. They were more popular in countries other than the U.S. In July of 2002, Suzanne's parents went on vacation, leaving her and Andreas home alone. Unbeknownst to them, Suzanne moved her boyfriend into their house while they were away. Andreas, who looked up to Daniel as a cool older guy, kept her secret. Suzanne and Daniel spent a month living together in bliss like a married couple, all on her parents' dime. By the time her parents returned home, Suzanne had decided that she could no longer live apart from Daniel. She told them that she wanted them to buy her and Daniel a love nest of their own. Only then would she be happy. Of course, they refused. Now Manfred told his daughter that she could do whatever she liked, but she'd have to earn her own way and pay for all her own expenses. He was done. If she wanted to live with her lazy, druggy boyfriend, she should have at it. But if she found herself living on the streets, he wouldn't be surprised. Suzanne, used to a comfortable life, a nice home, and money for her education, she still continued to attend and excel at her law school, didn't leave her home, but continued to see Daniel in secret so as not to be cut off from the family finances. A week before the murders, Manfred tried to catch Suzanne and Daniel together, but when he went to his house to confront them, they had already left. Suzanne was furious that her father was spying on her and, in her opinion, trying to control her life. Investigators found out all about Suzanne and her relationship with Daniel Carvinos and now decided to keep tabs on the couple. They'd had suspicions about the crime scene right off. Some cash was taken from the home, but many other expensive items had been left behind. There were papers strewn about the house in a seemingly random way, and to trained eyes, it looked like an amateur job of trying to stage a crime scene. Another detail from the crime scene they'd noted was that the faces of the murdered couple were covered with towels. This, they knew, could be a clue that the murderer knew and had a personal relationship with their victims. After finding Suzanne partying with her boyfriend soon after the murders, they decided to tail the couple. The funeral for the von Richthofens was held on November 3rd, which was also Suzanne's 20th birthday. They saw Suzanne, just hours after weeping at the burial, traveling with her boyfriend to her parents' vacation home, where she and her friends were celebrating her birthday with a blowout party. Now suspecting Suzanne and her boyfriend and her parents' murders, investigators tapped their phones, hoping to catch them making incriminating statements. Before that happened, they made another discovery. Daniel had a 26-year-old brother named Christian. They found that just hours after the murders, he'd purchased a motorcycle for $3,600, which he paid for in cash, all in $100 bills. Having looked into the Corvinos' background, they knew that they were of modest means. Neither Corvinos' brother was employed, so they decided to bring Christian in for questioning. He gave them a story about where he got the money to purchase the motorcycle. They checked out the story, and they determined that he'd lied. With that alone, Brazilian authorities had enough to arrest him. 
They also arrested his brother, Daniel, and Suzanne as well. Now grilled by the police about the murders of the von Richthovens, Christian soon cracked. He admitted to his part in the murders, implicating his brother and his girlfriend as well. When Daniel and Suzanne were told of Christian's confession, they admitted to taking part in the murder plot. Now the whole sordid and brutal tale would be heard. Manfred and Mauricia von Richthofen had been found brutally murdered, and now police had a confession from their own daughter. They were stunned at the cold, calculated way she described the planning and carrying out of the crime with her boyfriend, Daniel, and his brother, Christian. Susan had been tired of her father's interfering in her relationship with Daniel. Nor did she want to lose her parents' financial support, which she and Daniel needed, to continue their party lifestyle. She had told her boyfriend that her parents were worth millions, and she would inherit their fortune once they were gone. This may have sparked the idea that if they got rid of them, they could live and do as they pleased, with an unlimited amount of money at their disposal. So a plan was devised on how they might get away with murder. Daniel enlisted his older brother, Christian, with the promise that he'd be paid well for his participation in the plot, the first installment of which he'd used to pay for the motorcycle, and this had been their undoing. Prosecutors would say that all three planned the murders together from start to finish. On the night of October 31st, Suzanne first dropped off her brother, Andreas, at the Cyber Cafe to play video games with his friends. She then met up with Daniel and Christian. All three smoked marijuana and sniffed glue before they continued on to Suzanne's house. Earlier that evening, she had disengaged the home's burglar alarm and turned off the video security cameras. Now arriving with the brothers, they drove through the security gate and parked in the large garage. The men placed hoods over their heads and entered the house. Suzanne went ahead of them up to the second floor. She turned on a hallway light and peeked into her parents' room to make sure they were asleep. She signaled the men, who then entered the master bedroom, where the couple lay sleeping, unaware of their eldest child's murderous plan. Suzanne went downstairs to wait until it was over. Using heavy metal rods, they began beating Manfred and Mauricia savagely over the head, crushing in their skulls. Mercifully, they most likely never saw it coming before they were struck unconscious by the blows. But immediately after they'd been bludgeoned, the Cravinos brothers were horrified to hear gasping sounds coming from their victims. What they didn't know was that when a body sustains severe head trauma, the tongue can lose support at the base and then drops back into the throat, causing a death rattle. This is the sound the brothers heard, which caused them to panic. They wanted desperately to stop this horrifying sound and make sure their victims were dead. They grabbed towels from the master bathroom, wet them, and then placed them over their faces to smother them and stop the sounds. When that didn't work, they grabbed a pitcher and filled it with water. They tried to drown the sound out of them. Manfred stopped breathing, but the sound continued from Mauricia. They then tightened a plastic bag over her face until the sound finally stopped. Before leaving the room, they tossed the towels over the couple's faces. Suzanne came upstairs to look at their handiwork and make sure her parents were dead. They then went downstairs to stage the scene to make it look like a robbery. They attempted to make the house look like it had been ransacked, but if burglars had actually ransacked the house, they wouldn't have left behind jewelry, cell phones, in 2002, cell phones would have still been considered a luxury item, and even guns, 
which were later easily found by detectives. They took several thousand dollars in cash, however, with promises of more to come from Suzanne, to be sure. After leaving the house, Daniel and Suzanne checked into a motel for the night to help establish their alibi. They stayed for only a few hours before checking out at 3 a.m. Suzanne then picked up Andreas and returned to their home in the early morning hours to discover the break-in and call the police. Once the murder plot was revealed, the public at first considered Suzanne a victim as well. An educated girl from a good family like Suzanne's couldn't possibly be guilty of such a terrible crime, they thought. The Cravinos brothers, from a lower class and drug users, certainly manipulated and controlled the girl to do their bidding, or so it was believed for a time. In the Brazilian court system, it is common for the accused to remain free until the conclusion of their trials. And so it was for Suzanne, who remained free for almost a year while awaiting her day in court. In the meantime, she began legal proceedings to take control of 100% of her parents' estate, valued at more than $5 million U.S. dollars. But while still building their case against her, detectives found a gun hidden inside a teddy bear in her bedroom. They now feared for the safety of her younger brother, Andreas, who was the only other surviving beneficiary, and they took measures to protect him from his sister. Andreas had been crushed to discover that his sister and Daniel, who he considered like a big brother, had murdered his parents. But the incident that really turned the tide against the public sympathy for Suzanne was a television interview she did while awaiting trial. Before the interview began, but with the cameras already on, she was recorded getting instructions from her lawyer to cry and act out emotionally when talking about her parents' murder. It completely destroyed any credibility she may have had before and lost her support from the public. All over the world, the wheels of justice can turn very slowly, and Brazil is no exception. Suzanne von Richthofen's trial didn't begin until June 2006, four years after the murders. She and the Cravinhos brothers were charged with homicidio qualificado, or Brazilian law's equivalent of first-degree murder. Prosecutors placed the blame firmly on Suzanne, telling the jury that she was the mastermind behind the murder plot, not the other way around. She wanted to, quote, get her hands on the money and assets her parents had worked so hard to obtain, and wanted her freedom and independence without having to work for it, end quote. Suzanne pointed the finger at Daniel, saying that it was he who wanted her parents dead, and she had gone along only because she'd been in love and was afraid of losing him. Her defense attorney said that Suzanne lived a comfortable, privileged life and had no motive to kill her parents. In contrast, Daniel was living hand-to-mouth and had a rich girlfriend who was being pressured by her father to dump him. He'd had a taste of the good life while living with Suzanne in her parents' house while they were away. The only way to have this lifestyle permanently was to get rid of the von Richthofens, her defense claimed. His motive was money, plain and simple, and he'd used Suzanne towards this end. But the jury, as well as the public, saw a different story in court. Suzanne came across as cold, unfeeling, and unemotional, even when the descriptions of her parents' brutal injuries were presented in court. In contrast, the Cravinos brothers wept openly throughout the trial. The brothers' defense lawyers asserted that Suzanne manipulated her boyfriend into planning the murder by telling him her father had molested her. She'd said that her mother knew about it and had done nothing to stop it. 
Suzanne denied she'd ever said this, and Andreas disputed the claim as well. The character assassinations of the victims continued. When it was stated during the trial, that Manfred and Mauricia were abusive alcoholics. However, the autopsy detected no alcohol in either victim. The prosecutors closed the trial by characterizing Suzanne von Richthofen as the personification of the evil blonde. The jury had seen her unfeeling attitude towards this terrible crime. They'd even seen her laugh in open court. She was the worst sort of monster, the prosecutor told the jury, one who could plan a shocking murder, see it carried out, and practically dance on her parents' grave the next day, celebrating and partying with the murderers. He asked them to find her guilty, and also asked for the maximum penalty of 50 years behind bars. Over 200 people packed into the courtroom to hear the verdict. The trial and the case had become a real-life soap opera for the country, and every news team and talk show aired almost daily segments following the proceedings. The country had been shocked by the crime, and fascinated by the story of a child of wealth and privilege who turned into a monster. But truth be told, Suzanne reached celebrity status. She was an attractive young woman, and her picture was plastered over newspapers, magazines, and tabloids. People couldn't wait to find out the ending to this story when the jury returned its verdict on July 22, 2006. Suzanne was found guilty and sentenced to 39 years, 6 months in prison. Daniel Cravinos received the same sentence. His brother Christian was sentenced to 38 years for conspiracy. The media continued to report on Suzanne von Richthofen, whether about her appeal or any news of her activities behind bars. In 2009, she appealed her sentence and asked for house arrest. This request was denied. She tried again in 2011, but was turned down a second time. Also in 2011, her brother Andreas sued her for her half of the inheritance she was still eligible to receive, as well as money received from their parents' life insurance policy. But she wouldn't be without an inheritance completely. Her paternal grandmother still believed her innocent and kept her as beneficiary in her will. Upon her grandmother's death, she was scheduled to receive about $100,000 in cash and a home worth over $1 million. But after a decade in prison, Suzanne said she turned her life over to God and even became an advisor to other inmates in the women's prison where she was housed. She had stopped fighting for her part of her parents' inheritance and tried to reconnect with her brother. In 2014, she married another female prisoner and was transferred to a large married cell which she shared with her new wife, Sandra Gomez, and eight other couples. In order to be considered married by prison authorities, she was required to sign a form documenting that she was in a committed relationship. Suzanne's wife had been sentenced to 27 years for participating in the kidnapping of the child of a Sao Paulo businesswoman. The child was killed by the kidnappers when the ransom went unpaid. Gomez had one other marriage inside prison walls before Suzanne. Her first wife was Elise Matsunaga, another high-profile prisoner. Matsunaga had been charged with the murder and dismemberment of her husband, Marcos Kitano Matsunaga, in 2012. Gomez ended her marriage with Matsunaga to be with Suzanne. She ended that relationship and later became engaged to a businessman from Sao Paulo. Upon her request to serve the remainder of her prison time as an open sentence, meaning she could serve the rest of her sentence at home, Suzanne was subjected to a battery of psychological tests. 
the report concluded that she suffered from an egocentric personality and exhibited narcissistic traits, as well as a predisposition to violent behavior. It was recommended that she remain incarcerated, but she was deemed suitable for a minimum security facility. After she was transferred to the semi-open system, she was allowed five annual outings to leave the prison. She spent these days out with her boyfriend. In January 2018, Daniel Cravinos was released from prison. He'd spent a total of 15 years, three months in prison before he was released early due to good behavior and time earned off his sentence for work he'd performed in prison, including making tables and chairs used in public schools. In 2014, he met the sister of his cellmate, and they soon fell in love. While still in prison, he married Aline Bento. Aline, who worked in the biomedical field and lives in Sao Paulo, lost her job when the company discovered she was married to a convicted murderer. She had trouble finding other employment, and she and her family have tried to remain anonymous by deleting their social media accounts and removing all wedding photos of the couple that had been posted online. As soon as he was released, he was met by his wife. They planned to go on their long-awaited honeymoon trip. It would be a short vacation, as Daniel was required to find a job and keep it in order to remain free. Christian was released from prison in 2017, but was returned to prison the following spring when he was found with a weapon and charged with attempting to bribe a police officer. Sadly, Andreas von Richthofen, now 30 years old, continues to be greatly affected by his parents' murder. After his sister's arrest, he went to live with his maternal uncle, a doctor. He attended college at the University of Sao Paulo and received a Ph.D. in chemistry. Sometime after that, he dropped out of sight. Some thought he had gone abroad to do research. He'd commented to reporters at one time that his last name was so well-known in Brazil that it was impossible to escape the public's attention and interest in the murders. Then in early 2017, homeowners living just a few blocks from the home where the von Richthofens were murdered called about a prowler inside an empty house. When police arrived, they found a dirty and disheveled man whose eyes had a glazed-over look. He was believed to be on drugs, mentally disturbed, or both, and was taken to a hospital for evaluation. Only once at the hospital was it discovered that the man was Andreas. The sole heir to the Richthofen fortune had been living on the streets. He exhibited signs of mental illness and paranoia, according to an attending physician. He defended his break-in at the home as being, quote, ordered by the emperor. He was sent to another facility to detox from alcohol and drugs. He remained there for some time, receiving treatment. I hope he's doing well now. Brazilians continue to be interested in the von Richthofen case, so much so that a feature film is scheduled to be released in 2019 about the murders. Its working title translates in English to The Girl Who Killed Her Parents. It's very likely that Suzanne will be released from prison in the near future. Who knows? Perhaps even time for the movie premiere. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. For those in the U.S., this Thursday we will be celebrating Thanksgiving. I wish you all a wonderful day with family and or friends. Once again, I just want to say that I am so thankful for all of you who take the time to listen, to tell others about the podcast, rate, review, and subscribe to the show, or even go the extra mile and become Patreon supporters. You keep me motivated and energized 
to keep putting out episodes, and I'm so excited for all that is in store in 2019. But more on that later on. Until next time, you know what to do. Thank you.